Good afternoon and welcome. So we've got planning news for you. Um, great to see you all um, uh, once again. Uh, as I, I always say, can I remind you, um, please to consider making a charity donation in, view, in lieu of a registration fee. Um, the charities we support include the Ukraine GoFundMe page, um, Shelter and Brian May Save Me, details of which are on our website. And, and we're delighted um, to, to welcome uh, this evening as our, our special guest, um, Paul Barnard. Uh, Paul, hello. Um, thank you very much hello. indeed for joining. Paul is um, Service Director for Strategic Planning and Infrastructure and effectively Head of Planning at and more at Plymouth City Council. And Paul, you're our, our second successive Barnard on the show after Helen Barnard last week. Viewers, if you've got any suggestions for other Barnards we can invite on uh, for future episodes, please do um, add, uh, add those in, in the comments page. Um, so Paul, uh, can you tell us where you're, where you're calling us from? What theme have you chosen for this evening and, and what are you drinking? Yes, hello. Um, I'm coming to you from one of the Plymouth City Council offices uh, overlooking uh, Mill Bay Marina um, with Drake's Island in the background and uh, the other country called Cornwall uh, just across the water. Um, and uh, my, my theme, my theme, there'll be another reference to Cornwall in a second. Um, my theme is uh, alternative 1980s music. Um, I clearly couldn't get into my Bauhaus and Cure t-shirts from that era, so I dug out my um, British Summer Festival 40th anniversary t-shirt um, for the Hyde Park um, 40th anniversary. And, and inevitably, and perhaps not very uh, originally, I'm uh, obviously drinking um, Plymouth Gin uh, to, uh, to side with Mary. Fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to our chat with you in the second half of the show, Paul, which, which Paul's going to, other Paul's going to lead. Um, so in the meantime, can I introduce the, the panel? Uh, Mary's going to lead, in fact. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I got my Paul's mixed up there. Um, so Mary, uh, lovely to see you. I've just been seeing all your colleagues at various town legal parties in Nippin. You're all very well. Missed you. Cheers. Cheers. I too am drinking the gin. I'm slightly distressed that, as you can see, I've got rather less in my bottle than Paul's got in his. But um, it's delightful to be here. Mary Cook, Town Legal, and lovely to see you, Charlie. I'm slightly surprised you're not out on the beach, um, but uh, quite relieved that um, that you're you're with us. And I'm looking forward to my interview with Paul. Excellent, Mary. And Paul, other Paul, how are you doing? Sorry, sorry. Can I just say? Of course. This. Of course, the music that um, the decade that Paul has chosen is is slightly uh, um, a decade. To, I hate to admit this, but most of my records and most of my favourites date back to the seventies. Obviously, Paul was Shame. a babe in arms in the seventies. But however, and a lot of people wouldn't regard this as alternative. But this is actually I found this in my the complete nineteen eighty catalogue from um, the one and only UB forty. So that's what I got out. As fantastic a to the theme sorry fantastic <laughs> um paul we know what you were doing in the 80s <laughs> attending queen concerts in <laughs> the 80s the 80s was all me charlie i was learning how to do this thing ah i i didn't manage to get to the hacienda although i have to say i know a member of the planning bar uh whose name rhymes with uh, uh hon parrot uh, who used to go to the uh, Hacienda on a, on a regular basis. Uh, so 80s is me. But I, I've, I've thought about whether I could share some things for you. So uh, maybe something from about Joy Division or maybe Oasis or a bit of the Stone Roses. 
But no, I thought I'd share with you Peter Hook's recollection of the Hacienda. So what do you think was playing in the Hacienda in March of 1984? So in Manchester, yeah. Julian Cope, uh, the Heartbreakers, uh, uh, who else? Uh, Prefab Sprout, Delamitri, uh, Dead or Alive. What a, what a generation that wow. was. What a generation that was. Uh, and so in terms of what I'm drinking, uh, I went to my local Waitrose and, and asked them, as I do every Thursday, uh, have you got some beer from wherever? Uh, zero. Absolutely zero. Nothing. No Plymouth gin. No, nothing, nothing at all from Devon. I got some garbage uh, uh, cider from Somerset and oh. I got some of Chris's favourite stuff from St. Olsen. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, he needs to have a word with the guys at uh, John Le- at uh, Waitrose in, in Preston, so I'm going to just drink some water and cheer you and enjoy the 80s. Oh. Cheers, Paul. <laughs> Fantastic, Paul. Sash. I'm going to do this as well, by the way. I know. <laughs> See how you get on. You have to show us how you get on by the end of the end of the show. <laughs> Sasha, how are you, mate? Um, I'm so so. I've come down finally with COVID after two years oh. of remaining free. So I'm currently self isolating in the delights of North London. So I'm afraid I've had to reject Paul's recommendation for tea. <laughs> but talking about alternative music, I wanted to show Paul this. Can you see that poster? Ergon Music. Erga Music War, which was a definitive film on alternative bands of the 1980s, which was produced by my father. And I remember some of the peculiar, just going back to Paul's comments, some names that will bring us all happy memories. Joan Jett, the Surf Punks, the Wall of Voodoo, <laughs> Freco and the Bunnymen, the Cramps, yeah. the Flesh Tones, etc., etc. They could certainly come up with good names of bands in the 1980s. Thanks, Sasha. Well, uh, Charlie Banner here. I uh, I was told that Bon Jovi weren't alternative AC, so I'm very disappointed. About it. I, could have done, I could have done that theme very easily. Uh, and Def Leppard too. Um, but stuck in can here in Nipping, also stuck in can here. What was I going to do to find um, something 1980s music themed? Well, we had a reception here uh, in in the Keating flat yesterday, a breakfast reception with champagne and orange juice. And what does champagne and orange juice make? But nothing other than. Bucks Fizz, the winners of the 1981 Eurovision Song Contest. Not quite alternative, but not quite mainstream either. Good so anyway, segue, my... good segue. <laughs> so that's my contribution. Um, we're waiting. Chris is um, stuck in the, the third successive inquiry in, in North Somerset that he and I have been doing between us. So he's going to be, be joining us shortly. Uh, in the meantime, um, we are going to start our cases with Paul, I think. I'll get this right this time. Um, the Parish Council, Burwash Parish Council, High Court case tell us all about that uh, i'd be delighted to it's a 74 page judgment um it took me a, a huge amount of time to get to grips with it which has about three paragraphs of reasoning when you when you get into it uh it's yet another occasion where the courts have grappled with the challenge uh to a neighborhood plan uh and where the courts have said thanks uh close the door on the way out um, this particular challenge was uh, by an organisation called Park Lane Homes, who were judicially reviewing, because uh, that's what you have to do to neighbourhood plans, uh, the decision of Rother District Council to accept the recommendations of the examiner of the Burwash neighbourhood plan. Um, they had some degree of aggravation because they uh, controlled a site which was an allocation uh, within the local plan itself, a place called uh, Strand Meadows in Burwash. It had got a, an outline consent in March of 2018 on the back of the local plan allocation from 2006 for, for 30 dwellings. 
Um, that, that's 30 dwellings that don't yet have reserved matters because what happened uh, was that they applied for, for full permission in June of 2018, uh, which ultimately was not back on design and landscape and the appeal was dismissed. And then there was an application for reserved matters and that too was not back. Uh, so <coughs> they find themselves with an outline permission from some time ago uh, and they were desperate to try and get their site allocated within the Burwash na- neighbourhood plan, arguing that it had to be consistent with the adopted core strategy, which allocated the site. Uh, well, uh, there were essentially a couple of grounds, uh, one of which was uh, compliance with the basic conditions, uh, as we all know from the case that I crashed and burnt on uh, BDW uh, in front of Mr Justice Supperston, uh, the very start of the uh, neighbourhood plan uh, round Robin, uh, that uh, you don't test neighbourhood plans for soundness, you test them to see whether or not it feels like a neighbourhood plan. I think it sort of involves this sort of thing. <laughs> Um, so you don't test it for soundness. You don't look into the land use issues as you do with a, with a local plan. You, you assess it as to whether it meets the basic conditions. A is compliance with national policy. E is generally in accordance with the local plan. In relation to A, uh, 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 Mrs Justice Lang said, uh, terribly sorry, uh, there is no requirement for you to allocate sites in a neighbourhood plan. Uh, and in relation to... Um, the, the ground E, the uh, basic, basic condition E, uh, she concluded that there was no obligation within the core strategy to roll forward the allocation and that there was a choice that was open to the uh, neighbourhood plan forum uh, not to allocate. And that was open within the scope of national guidance. And that wasn't inconsistent with the core strategy which allocated the site. I struggle with that. I genuinely struggle with that. Um, there's no real explanation as to why a rationality challenge was, was uh, uh, refused, but it's fairly clear that it was another case where they're just saying, "Sorry, neighbourhood plans are not really the, the, the uh, 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 not really to be dragged along to the high court because they are meant to be very much like touch." There was another uh, ground of challenge, ground two, which was that the um, the district plan, district authority, the chief exec, essentially didn't grapple with a reason as to why it was that he should accept the examiner's uh, reasoning. Uh, and Mrs Justice Lang said, so long as you're accepting the reason, you don't need to give a reason. So the reason is I'm accepting your reason. Um, so altogether, it's another issue where the courts have taken a neighbourhood plan challenge and kicked it completely out of touch at the far end of the field. Uh, and uh, yet another depressing uh, case where, frankly, neighbourhood plans should be assessed for land use pr- planning use issues. That's part it's of the development plan. Um, so um, I'm going to talk about um, a, um, a appeal decision of Inspector Jennifer Vise in relation to a, um, uh, a collection of tall building proposals in central Bristol. Um, before I do, I think there's two kind of nuggets of updates I should um, give you. Firstly, Stuart Andrew, the new planning minister, was giving, or the latest new planning minister, was giving uh, a talk at MIPIM yesterday. Uh, and the key message of his talk was brownfield first should mean brownfield first. There were all sorts of hints that there may be a... Um, uh, a recalculation of the standard method to to, to give effect to that. So um, that seems to be the tenet of, of his likely um, tenure as, as planning minister. Secondly, some of you may have seen um, that um, earlier today, Natural England and the Department of uh, DEFRA indicated that 42, 42 more local authorities now affected by the phosphates and nutrient neutrality issue, uh, which is holding up um, development at the moment in, in a number of parts of Somerset and other places. Um, it's not entirely clear yet which of the 42 authorities um, 
the the government the defra website has indicated that they uh, they'll give 100,000 to local authorities to help deal with that issue but there is a real um concern that that until the infrastructure is in place to deal with um the phosphates issue that's going to lead to a number of of developments which otherwise would be um in the public interest to perceive being held up so that's something to keep a very close close eye upon um anyway the bristol case as i said it, it concerned a collection of Proposed um, buildings, um, four to five storeys, uh, and one uh, eight-storey, one 14-storey, um, for a mix of uses, principally commercial at the ground floor and student accommodation in the higher floors. Um, and the main issue, the con- main controversial issue, there was a side issue about heritage, the main issue related to flood risk. And whether the um, the appeal scheme um, was in accordance with the uh, policy test, both in development plan and the framework, um, particularly this, this sequential and exception test. Most of the focus was on the exception test. There was an objection by the Environment Agency, which they pursued to an inquiry. They represented at the at the inquiry. Fairly rare these days to have a case about flood risk where the EA is represented um, go all the way to a substantial inquiry. I think it sat for um, something like ten days. Um, anyway, the appeal was allowed. Um, and the, the key reasoning was, was as follows, that in relation to the, so the site, just to be clear, was in uh, flood zones 3A, so it was at high risk of flooding, um, hence the agency's objection. Um, and in relation to the sequential test, uh, the inspector was satisfied and didn't seem to be a particular issue of controversy at the quarry that um, there were no other sites that could accommodate the development proposed. And so the sequential test was passed. And so the real focus was on the application of the exception test, which was the same in development plan as the, the test and the framework. And two parts um, to the uninitiated, the exception test. The part A requires demonstration of development would provide wider sustainability benefits to the community that outweigh the flood risk. And part B requires demonstration of development would be safe for its lifetime, taking into account the vulnerability of its users um, uh, and so on. So... Um, in relation to the, the first part, um, the inspector dealt with that fairly um, quickly and concisely, um, holding that the, the 2.8 year housing land supply, uh, the pressing need for, in particular for student accommodation, which would free up home, family homes into uh, the general market, uh, meant that the first part of the, of the exception test was satisfied. So the focus of the decision, 46 pages in total, was on the, the second part of, of the exception test. Um, and um, the in relation to modelling, a key part of the agency's case was that um, it had difficulty in interrogating the, the model um, for flood risk that the appellant had put forward. Um, the inspector was fairly critical of the agency in that respect and, and noted that the agency hadn't actually asked for the model uh, until fairly shortly before the inquiry, and it could have done so for many months before. So there's a lesson learned um, in that respect. So she didn't um, give much um, thrift to that. In relation to the, um, the design flood, either the extent and nature of the flood that the development should be designed for, um, there was quite an important debate there, which replicates a debate that's been had in a calling uh, case, which is still decision, which is still waiting from the Secretary of State, in relation to whether the, the relevant application, relevant guidance for the design flood, which on the face of it uh, uh, provides for a range in these circumstances and a judgment to be used as to where within the range um, the um, 
design fund, but B, the agency who said it had to, as a matter of obligation, be at the top end of that range, particularly having a regard to potential for climate change. The inspector didn't agree uh, and was with the appellants on that and found that the design flood uh, used by the appellant was appropriate. Uh, in relation to floor levels, the inspector thought they were acceptable. In relation to use of voids to um, mitigate the flood risk, to provide flood storage in the event of a, of a flood event. Um, the inspector noted that the agency hadn't called any evidence to say the voids wouldn't function as models. So again, she felt the balance of evidence was with the appellant because it hadn't really been interrogated. In relation to safe access in, uh, for uh, and, and egress in, for uh, occupants of the, of the development in the event of a significant flood. There's quite an interesting passage there on the use of grampian conditions. So anybody involved in a case at the moment in relation to where, where not just in the context of flood risk, but any other context, um, there's a need to deal with a particular issue through a grampian condition. The inspector looked at the case law about how much of a prospect needed to be, and she felt there was enough of a prospect of a proposed grampian condition dealing with an access route that required third-party land, enough of a prospect that that would come forward um, that um, the grampian condition was an acceptable solution. Um, and then in relation to flood forecasting, she felt that um, the, there was no basis thinking people wouldn't get enough of a warning from the Met Office in relation to floods. The evacuation plan uh, was a matter of some controversy. Um, it was said by the agency that a, a recent appeal decision in relation to Skegness, development of Skegness, where it was held uh, by the Secretary of State that the, um, the flood risk evacuation plan there um, was unacceptable. Um, the agency said that meant that the flood uh, evacuation plan had to be um, fixed in full detail at the outside outline stage and couldn't be left to condition. So it's something that the details of which had to come forward up front. Um, the inspector did disagree, said that this Gagnon's case was distinguishable. So that's an important point for those in, in the field of flood risk. So overall, the inspector felt the exception test was met. There was a separate section dealing with the various heritage assets, given it was near Temple Mees, the heart of Brunel City. And the inspector felt that the public benefits of the scheme, particularly having regard to housing and student um, need, um, were um, meant that the public benefits outweighed the less than substantial harm. So, um, so that's the, um, that case. And we're now going to um, proceed to Chris, who's going to tell us about a case in Rochford. And, and while we're doing, Chris, um, welcome and tell us, tell us what your theme for the, uh, the 80s. Uh, 80s alternative is uh, well so I'm late I'm in an inquiry I'm in Western Supermare uh, which is very like Cannes as you know but slightly more glamorous and uh, I um, I'm here on a housing case uh, they were wrapping up at the inquiry so I've hot-footed it to uh, James Stacey's house James lives near the inquiry venue uh, that's a, a picture from Devon by a Devon artist uh, um, behind me uh, I've got the obligatory drink uh, how impressive is that? And my T-shirt is the jam, so I reckon I've hit. I reckon I've hit all the points. Um, so uh, yes, I'm in inquiry arguing over uh, 125 houses on a greenfield site, where it's just down the road. One of my best mates is building a nuclear power station. He is in charge of that with 7,800 people. But it is it is harder to get 125 houses in this country than a nuclear <laughs> power station. Just saying. All right. Uh, so I've got a case to talk about, which is a case involving uh, Sarah Reed and a successful appeal by Bloor Holmes um, for a site in, in Rushford, as you say. 
David Wildsmith was the inspector. Uh, there we can see uh, it's uh, in Roachford in Essex, and it was for a fairly substantial sum uh, number of houses. It was for 662 dwellings on a greenfield site. So you might think to yourself, crikey, that's quite a, an ambitious proposal for an appeal uh, to go in with that many houses. You're not going to deliver all those in the five-year land supply. If we have a look at the, uh, the appeal site, I think we've got a couple of images. That's the site. How logical is that? Wedged between Oxford Road and Percy Cotts Road. Uh, that is a pretty obvious housing site, isn't it? In the, one of the main settlements, the main settlement. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag now. That's an allocated site. Yes, an allocated site. Imagine such a thing, an allocated site which the members refused. Uh, so this is what happened if we go to the uh, detail of the appeal decision. The appeal site was identified under policy H3 of the district core strategy as a site for approximately 500 dwellings in the post-2021 period as an extension to an existing residential development. So it's an, a site allocated for 500 houses and was refused. Why was it refused? Well, let's have a look at what the member's reason for refusal was. I think that's the next paragraph uh, that we've got. Members didn't accept the positive recommendation for officers. They refused it on the basis of, and I quote, a absence of a definition of severe. It's a local planning authority's view that whether a severe impact would result in this case uh, had been effectively, hadn't been proven. So the whole thing went to appeal on the fact there wasn't a definition of severe. Well, we know there isn't a definition of severe, but um, what the inspector concluded was that having considered the evidence, uh, it wasn't severe. The evidence didn't demonstrate that. Um, and then all the benefits associated with the proposal uh, were that it would deliver a huge number of affordable units, 232 affordable units, um, it was very contentious locally, which is why the members uh, refused it. A lot of emotions running high. The local MP, uh, Marc Francois, was uh, against the proposal. He appeared at the inquiry, um, but the inspector took the view, and this is interesting, he'd give significant weight to a plan-led system. And this site was obviously an allocated site. In cross-examination, the councillor by Sarah Reid, the councillor accepted housing needs were acute and critical, and that there was a need for it to come forward to meet those needs. Highway safety, uh, the Highway Authority advised no issues. The council instructed an expert. The expert signed a statement of common ground confirming there were no issues. Um, therefore, it had largely evaporated. Um, it's a sorry old tale, isn't it? But there we go. Now, Bloors didn't pursue costs. Uh, um, Robert Eben is the uh, client at, um, at Bloors, and, and he said he recognised there were issues. I think he's been very di diplomatic in that, uh, if I may say so. So they didn't pursue costs, but they have now got planning permission for over 600 houses. So well done to Sarah Reid. If we just uh, have a look, I think we've got the uh, list of appearances uh, she called Peter Blair and uh, Ben Pycroft and Simon Grubb. So well done to that team. Well done to Robert Bloor as well. And uh, a very good outcome. And well done to Andrew Parkinson for avoiding costs.
There we go. Thanks, Chris. And of course, as of as of Monday, I'll be Sarah Reed QC, which will be a fantastic um, achievement, along with all the various other QCs to be appointed on Monday. Um, now, Sasha, you're going to tell us about an appeal decision in Pusey. Yeah, I'm going to just briefly touch upon an appeal relating to housing in Pusey, Wiltshire. And as we all know, Wiltshire has not got a five-year land supply, but there was a major issue here, and that is the site proposed was within the AOMB. There were two appeal schemes before the inspector. One, as we can see, a PLA was for 50 dwellings, and effectively that, as I understand it, was completely affordable housing. Appeal B was for 30 um, dwellings, which did have an element of market and an element of affordable. Now, I mean, the simple point is that it's not easy. Um, Charlie will be familiar with Monkhill decision, obviously, very well, as I know it, and the, the grappling with how you, the approach to development in the AOMB. In relation to a PLA, the inspector concluded it was major development at 50 units. We all know we have this issue, this intangible issue of what constitutes major development and like severe, not defined in the MPPF. But in this case, the inspector found that a PLA was major, a PLB was not. However, frankly, um, the fundamental conclusion in this case is that the proposal, although the the harm would be localised, the landscape character harm would be localised, it was significant harmful effect. And that was of such magnitude that effectively it would disengage the tilted balance that was in play because of the lack of five-year land supply in relation to PLA. And effectively, the inspector concluded that appeal B, that the, the harm would still significantly and demonstrably outweigh the benefits so i think the takeaway from that appeal is the getting permissions apart from certain notable exceptions which certain people on this panel will know um getting permission for major development and non-major development in the omb is no is not getting any easier so that's the takeaway thank you charlie Thanks, Ash, and I completely agree. And in fact, the Monk Hill appeal, the Supreme Court refused mission to appeal about a couple of weeks ago. So the High Court and Court of Appeals decision is now final, effectively meaning that if there's harm to the to the AMB, even for minor, even for non-major development, that effectively disapplies the tilt balance. Um, and so whatever we think the rights or wrongs of it, that is now the definitive position um, for now, which clearly uh, makes it... Um, considerably more difficult to get permission in, in uh, the AMB, even for non-major development. Okay, well, Mary, in which case we're going to hand over to you and Paul to start our um, feature discussion, which I'm really looking forward to. So over to you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to this. So, Paul, we first met, you will recall, back in the 1990s when you were fresh from Haringey, arriving in Plymouth, and you were responsible for driving forward in the uh, new city local plan, a policy about accessible housing. Do you remember that? And uh, you gathered a formidable evidence base and you successfully resisted the objections of one certain national house builder. Uh, and this is in the day when very few councils had such policies. So it was all ground, ground blazing stuff. And I managed to find Paul a little present I was given by the team um, when this local plan um, was found. Um, well, it wasn't found sound because soundness didn't ex exist. But anyway, there were awards given and you may be interested to be reminded that you were given the award for the greatest number of appendices in the face of an objection. <laughs> 
which I remember well. 25, I seem to recall. <laughs> <laughs> However, look at you now. Look at you now. You're now a member of the RTPI. You're a member of the Chartered Institute of Housing. You were awarded an MBE in 2019 for services to planning in Plymouth. Let's have it, a roll call. And that's not all, because in 2019, you won the RTPI gold medal. And I just want to uh, 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 read out a little bit of the citation that Sue Manns gave when, when she was president uh, at that stage. She awarded you this gold medal. She described you as, and I quote, an exceptional town planner whose leadership, planning expertise, ability to innovate and sheer determination have resulted in planning services in Plymouth City Council now being considered amongst the best in the country. And everybody needs to appreciate this is a discretionary award. It's in the gift of the Board of Trustees. It's actually international. And um, Paul shares this award with many other luminaries. And the most appropriate I wanted to mention was Sir Patrick Abercrombie, responsible, of course, for the post-war Abercrombie plan. And I can see that you've got a little uh, poster up there behind you, Paul. Welcome to the Abercrombie Awards. Um, so welcome, welcome to the show. Let's just tell the audience a little bit about Plymouth, if, if you don't mind. So can we just remind everybody, Plymouth is a city of under eight, uh, 80 square metres, population 262,000, surprisingly twice as big as Exeter, home to Plymouth Argyle, the wonderful waterfront, the Barbican, the theatre, the Plymouth University, Mahjong University, the National Marine Aquarium, large teaching hospital in Derriford. It's on the edge of Dartmoor. It's a cracking spot. But it does have Indeed. issues. It does have issues with poverty and deprivation. So it's not yes. all plain, it's it not all plain sailing for, uh, uh, for those who live and work in Plymouth. So Paul, it once had the it once had the most deprived ward in the city, but we we produce a um, a book yes. of wonder, and I just wanted to share very quickly three um, crucial facts. Um, one is around uh, the oldest uh, um, gin distillery that's still operational um, in the country, Plymouth Plymouth yes. Gin, uh, where the Pilgrim Fathers allegedly uh, stayed before their uh, voyage to America. Uh, secondly. Uh, a crucial fact, given my comments about Cornwall earlier, that um, according to the Plymouth Borough accounts from 1510, the earliest pasty recipe um, comes from from Plymouth. Ah. Uh, a point of great point of. Oh, I great think the dispute. Cornish might disagree with that, but yes. Yes, and the, and lastly, um, we I don't know if this is still the case, but uh, back in 2015, uh, we had the youngest listed building in the country um, from Sir Nicholas Grimshaw, um, uh, formerly the, uh, the, the uh, paper offices of the local paper, now an enterprise uh, hub. Very clever. So you've managed to get in there, the old and the new, in relation to Plymouth, which is most apt. So, Paul, first question from me. I know you're very passionate um, about planning and you talk about proactive, positive planning. Can you just explain what you mean by that? And can you give us an example? Yeah, um, it's been the sort of mantra that we've worked to for, for many years. Um, it, it, we see the role of planning as, as a positive agent for change and planners being that those agents of change. 
and and I think what we've done in the past is to actually work collaboratively with stakeholders and with members to create a vision for the city. Uh, I think we'll come on to to uh, how we've done that in the past, but actually being proactive and having a a sort of relentless drive to turn the plans for the city, uh, the strategy for the city, uh, the vision for the city. Uh, and its surrounding area into delivery on the ground. So I think we've been passionate because of that, that we wanted to turn uh, what we've planned for into delivery on the ground through various innovations that we've done over the years. Well, that's excellent. So that leads me neatly into the second question, which is uh, the city have won the, the RTPI Silver Jubilee Cup three times. I mean, that's a unique achievement. Uh, can you just explain why you've won it on each occasion? What have you done to achieve that? Yeah, the first time uh, was, I think we embraced the the local development framework system from the 2004 Act. We saw the opportunities to to drive that delivery and to embed sort of growth. We we commissioned, uh, uh, sadly um, uh, departed now, uh, uh, David Mackey, who perhaps most famous for the Barcelona Olympic Village and various um, housing developments around uh, Berlin and elsewhere in Europe. And I think uh, that inspired us to be more ambitious for the growth of the city, what became known as the growth agenda. Uh, We were quadrupling the build rates of housing in that core strategy from what was typically the case in the in the 1990s and it sort of tied in with a a confluence of thinking that we could be something bigger uh, and better and that, that the core strategy was the was the mechanism to to take that agenda forward so that's that was the first um, time we won. The second time we won, uh, again, working within the sort of adopted planning policy, um, statutory planning policy frameworks, we created something called Plan for Homes with an ambition to deliver 5,000 homes in five years. In fact, we delivered 5,564 homes, um, including wheelchair houses, accessible housing, veterans housing, extra care units, um, through the release of 138 acres of of city council-owned land, but also working with partners on private sector land um, to deliver something like 53% affordable housing uh, on those sites. And, and obviously, you would have gathered that having released those that land in uh, less than two years uh, and accelerated how quickly we got from uh, the release of land through planning permission to uh, delivery on the ground, cut about a year and a quarter off of the typical time period that that takes using the planning system and not the sort of OGU contractual arrangements. And there were risks to this to drive that acceleration. So that was the second time we won. And then the third time we won was a reflection of um, us utilizing the community infrastructure levy uh, neighborhood proportion. And rather than create a sort of bureaucratic sort of committee-based system of allocating that, we uh, worked with Crowdfunder UK as a, as a crowdfunding platform to to generate community-led projects that could access that funding. So I think that sort of demonstrates that we've used the, the how you can use the planning system to, to be innovative in uh, addressing issues at a strategic level in the case of the core strategy, delivery in the case of the plan for homes, and working with communities to deliver a whole range of community-based projects, for example, a dementia cafe, that uh, just perhaps would not have happened if we had not quite done it that way. It's so wonderful to hear such positivity about uh, planning and how you can use the system in, in that way. 
Looking back, how much of an advantage do you think it has been to, that Plymouth has become a unitary authority? Yeah, I think it, it, on reflection, I think it was quite crucial. It, mm. the, there was a there was a general feeling in the business community and probably in in the sort of political world that that Plymouth during the eighties and nineties, as as basically the fifteenth biggest um, urban authority in the country, had not really punched above its weight. Um, and that there was a lack of ambition. I think some of that's unfair, but um, it tied in with that with that uh, reinvigoration of, of local democracy that arose from uh, becoming unitary, becoming unitary in 1997. And of course, being in control of um, of, of all elements of planning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so Plymouth no longer being a district of Devon meant that, again, we could innovate in a way that perhaps we might not have been able to if we'd remained a district. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. Um, now, back in 2019, you achieved a successful uh, joint local plan with South West Devon and South Hams. Uh, w- how easy was that? Why did you do it? And what advice would you give to others considering such an approach? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think there was, a uh, again, a confluence of cross-party recognition uh, and cross-authority recognition that um, that a joint plan would allow members to make local democratic decisions about where housing should go, where infrastructure should go, and where it shouldn't go. And and uh, uh, and I have to say, you know, there there hadn't been a track record of uh, of delivery uh, between those three authorities. There have been some sort of joint working under the old regional uh, assembly days, but uh, it was uh, a feeling that uh, that all of those authorities would benefit by coming together. Clearly, we were able to pool resources, um, uh, and clearly, we were also able to make those sort of strategic decisions about infrastructure and uh, and housing delivery. So um, it was certainly one of the fastest uh, joint local plans uh, that was uh, that was ever produced, um, uh, and uh, uh, I don't think there are many strategic plans like that that allocate 115 housing sites. Um, so um, from our perspective, um, it was a confluence, I think, of of political will, um, but also a recognition by the professionals involved that that this was the right thing to do to properly plan for the area. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And what advice would you give others trying to do this? What, what's, you know, what are the key things to get right? Uh, I think getting a consensus and building a trusting relationship um, at the political level was key. Uh, in Plymouth's case, I think we changed control from Labour to Conservative and back again at least twice during that period. Um, and uh, the other authorities were conservative controlled. The relationships between the members uh, was absolutely crucial and they worked really, really well together. It was undoubtedly a risk because they hadn't worked together, but they, they were a really strong part of how it, how they, how it worked. We brought them uh, very, very big decisions and there was a danger that they might have kicked that in the long grass and, and sort of said, oh, we need more time to think. But they were absolutely mm-hmm. determined that one of the primary benefits of doing the joint local plan was that they would make the democratic decisions about where development should be located. Uh, and they were very mindful that if they didn't, uh, uh, as they did, fully meet the objectively assessed need for the whole local plan housing market area, that they would be opening themselves up to, um, to challenge on appeal. 
so I think it, that was an important thing, the relationship building at a political level, and I would say at an officer level as well. Because yeah. again, although there have been some initiatives, there, there hadn't been a lot of uh, very detailed working on the planning side anyway. Yeah, no, I, uh, um, I would agree with that. Um, I also think the governance at the time, we were discussing governance issues. Uh, that was mm. that turned out, I mean, that was a, a, an important thing to get right. Um, okay, so moving, moving forward, um, what infrastructure, I mean, I, what have you got, as it were, out of the local plan? And uh, has having that local plan in, in place enabled you to uh, secure infrastructure and, and, and funding, external public funding for it. And when I say infrastructure, I'm not necessarily confining myself to transport. I'd just like to yeah, understand well, the benefits I, of having, having an up-to-date plan. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we put a lot of work into the infrastructure needs assessment that backed up the infrastructure policies um, in the plan. Um, and then we uh, worked very hard uh, with local MPs and local councillors uh, to access various pots of funding to drive forward the delivery of that infrastructure. So we're currently delivering 106 million Transforming Cities Fund programme. Uh, we've got about half a billion of uh, strategic transport projects that we're currently um, constructing. Uh, but we also have secured um, National Marine uh, Park sort of status in it's not a statutory designation, but but that has been supported by government. Uh, uh, Plymouth Community Forest, uh, we've had that designation. A whole raft of um, of uh, um, initiatives in relation to green space, which has clearly become a much more important and cherished issue for local people in terms of quality placemaking, given the impacts of the pandemic. So a whole range of uh, of infrastructure. I'm absolutely convinced we have been able to pray in aid. Uh, the commitments in the local joint local plan to enable us to unlock um, those various funding streams. That's excellent. And I, 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 we've got lots of comments coming in. One of them saying, fab, Paul, wish all planning authorities were like yours, with which we all agree. Well, <laughs> there's no reason why they can't be. Um, uh, I, I am fortunate enough to be a peer reviewer for the Planning Advisory Service, and I saw that you had your session with Anna Rose. I, I'm a great believer in sector-based improvement. Um, I'm not claiming, as the previous appeal case that uh, was highlighted by Chris shows, um, I'm not claiming it's all it uh, that 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 it's 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 right in every place. But there's no reason why it can't be, and I actually think. Planning, the Planning Advisory Service and Local Government Association have got an absolutely crucial role to play um, in driving forward that type of vision. You know, it's, it's recapturing the vision of what Plymouth, uh, what not just Plymouth, but what, what planning itself should be about. It's about creating quality places. And, you know, the whole concept of the 47 Act was around local planning authorities and local plans to drive that agenda. Um, yes, the world's moved on in terms of the role of the state in the delivery of some of these things, particularly housing. But nevertheless, um, there's no reason why any authority, large or small, can't be creative. And actually, uh, there's a lot of authorities that are doing some creative things around the country, um, which is why celebrating that success um, uh, and the people who are doing the work, um, uh, all the members of staff in all the teams, um, it's right and proper that they get recognised by their peers. Absolutely. It's so it, I mean, it's so important for everyone to see a, the positive side of working in the planning sector and not just um, 
as it were, um, you know, the, 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 the side which, which can be um, perhaps a, a little more um, difficult. Now, if you were in a room with Gove and you had one thing to ask him, what would it be and why? Yeah, difficult question because, of course, there's lots and lots well, of I, things that I would I know. Would it's hard to pin you down on any one thing, Paul. Come on. No, quite. Probably, probably it has to be resourcing. Um, I know many of your other guests have talked about that. I mean, the reality is um, um, the the IFS, SIPFA, the Royal Town Planning Institute met you know, there's been loads of studies done. Planning by far has had the greatest reductions in local government spending since 2010 than any other service. We all know the significance of the pressures facing adult social care and children's, particularly, of course, for unitary authorities. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can't deliver a modernised planning system without the um, calibre people to deliver it. It's as simple as that. Um, and I just don't understand, you know, I mean, most most of the public sector planners um, uh, will be thinking about how they're delivering their budget reductions for next year. That's what they're, they're, that's what I've been focusing on in the last three months um, uh, because that is the, uh, I, I start every year now, albeit this covers non-planning functions, I start every year needing to find 7.11 million of income um, for, for primarily statutory services. Um, so there's a reality check here about resourcing, and I just don't understand. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great advocate for the decentralisation of planning fee setting. What, what on earth is the cost of uh, putting an application in for an extension or for a housing scheme, for that matter, got to do with the Secretary of State um, in terms of the cost in Berwick as opposed to the cost in, in Plymouth? So, you know, resourcing is definitely the big, big issue, an unresolved issue from the planning white paper. Having said that, I think there's been a shift with with um, uh, Michael Gove becoming the Secretary of State. There's a much more collaborative approach mm. being adopted by officials and a recognition that that these things need to be co-designed and worked through with local government if if a modernised system is to be delivered. And, and I, str- I warmly welcome that. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm just going to open this up now. Um, Paul, other Paul, our Paul... King of the North, what would you like to ask King of Plymouth? Um, j- just picking up on that last point, can I completely agree with you? Uh, eventually, government will realise you hypothecate planning fees and fix them at a rate which means that you can provide the service and then you provide the service that justifies it. Quite why we've not done that and why we don't charge for appeals is beyond me, but that's, that's for another day. Um, but Paul, it is a delight to see you again. Uh, uh, because although our viewers may not know it, uh, Mary, you and I were in the same room uh, back in 1993 and 1992, um, and I've checked to see how old Charlie was at that time. Uh, I searched Charlie Banner QC, and it first came up with Charlie Banner QC, what's his net worth? And I won't tell you what all the others <laughs> <laughs> uh, And it's, it's eye-watering, genuinely. Um, the, the reason why we were in the same room was because we were on other opposite sides in relation to a challenge in re- uh, as to how you approach planning obligations and the approach to planning gain. I was for the, the, the humble co-op challenging permissions that have been granted by Plymouth for Sainsbury's and Tesco's who've been involved in a bidding war to create planning gain. And uh, we came second. That the people in the room uh, are extraordinary as well. That the late Andrew Gilbart, former recorder of Manchester, who was my leader, 
Tony Port in QC, one of the most eminent members of the Planning Silt, was leading Mary. Uh, Michael Barnes, QC, was leading someone called David Elvin, uh, whatever happened to him. Uh, and then Robert Carnworth uh, and John Ferber. John Ferber, now QC, an eminent chap from Wilberforce Chambers. Uh, uh, Robert Carnworth, uh, uh, former Supreme Court judge. Extraordinary, all those people in the same room. And I was terrified. And we lost. <laughs> so it's a delight to see you, Paul. And I'm going to jump, use that as an excuse to ask you about planning gain as it is now. So having set the ball rolling for planning gain back in 1993 and Plymouth being a, a bit of a, 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 a forward thinking authority about how you make sure that you do get planning gain from uh, uh, developers. How's it been for the last 30 years? Fractured, clearly, um, given all of the subsequent changes to seal regulations and uh, and various changes to the MPPF. Um, so, yes, that was a landmark case. And obviously it's been built on in, in other cases since. Um, but I mean, it's back to the fundamental point about, you know, what should a development, a sustainable development properly make provision for uh, that it, uh, as part of the development costs? And that will get you into a debate very quickly about what was paid for the land. Um, but, um, but what is it reasonable, given the uplift in the value that derives from the granting and planning commission, that should reasonably be, if you like, identified for the benefit of the communities? I, I'd never liked the phrase planning gain. I prefer the phrase community benefits, although neither are particularly recognised in, in the guidance. But but there's there's a balance to be struck, and frankly, I think that you know I don't I don't believe a single viability assessment. I see, you know, there it, it's 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 a game, um, and it's become an incredibly resource intensive game. And to be fair to the government, um, notwithstanding our our own fifty one page critique of the planning white paper, um, I we basically supported the concept of an infrastructure levy. But of course, the devil will be in the detail as to how that actually operates. I mean, if we want to take a more fundamental view of it and putting to one side the Community Land Act of 1975 and what people think about that, um, the reality is, you know, the betterment provisions of the 47 Act have, have, have come and gone. You know, there are, there are limitations to, to uh, how you deal with this unless you go down a taxation system. So you get into, into a debate about land value capture and a, and a mandatory taxation system rather than um, uh, effectively trying to negotiate these things in an ad hoc way and by definition an inefficient way um, associated with individual development proposals. Thank you, Paul. That's really helpful. And just to pick up a WhatsApp that I've just received, David Elvin is one of the greatest legal minds of our generation. And I'll <laughs> Chris, what's your question, please, for Paul? Uh, I love Plymouth. Paul, we were there a half term. I hadn't been there before. I thought it's absolutely amazing. The aquarium, the uh, the dockside, just absolutely brilliant. Uh, so I, I'm not part of your tourism team, but I would advocate completely a trip to Plymouth. Um, and uh, and uh, Becky is right. Becky Brown it is Yvonne Kuma, the, um, the artist behind me. My question, though, um, Imagine a young planner watching this, we have lots of this, and they think to themselves, sitting there after having done a day of, you know, um, extensions and various small applications, how do I end up being Paul Barnard? How do I end up doing stuff that's exciting, that's creative, that's uh, strategic, because I'm sat here dealing with somebody's dormer? Uh, what is the pathway to being Paul Barnard? Well, putting to one side the not inflicting that trauma on them, um, uh, probably um, 
I'd say that, I mean, I, I meet some incredible young planners. I mean, there's some absolutely fantastic young planners out there. And clearly, you know, part we've all, you know, certainly in the public sector, um, you, you go through that. I, I, when I was working in Haringey, it was during the sort of the, the, the boom years in the late 80s, you know, dealing with lots of conversions of Edwardian and Victorian properties. And, and uh, there's only so much of that you can take when you've passed nearly a thousand of them. Um, but um, I guess I'd say you've got to cut your teeth on these things because it, it, it helps you make decisions. One of the things that strikes me about planners um, compared to other um, local government officials is planners are actually analytical. Uh, they can often be strategic without realising they're being strategic. Uh, they are very disposed to making a recommendation and it's fascinating to me that very senior people in other functions of local government seem averse to making a recommendation but it's a fundamental part of what planners do um, so so I, I would say that's part of the learning ground but then actually making sure that that you put your name forward and volunteer for initiatives and projects so that you can get that experience uh, I'd, I'd always recommend somebody works in development management because I think that's the important part of it's it's the delivery bit of planning in my view. Um, but I'd also um, suggest that people can get into specialist careers, whether that's the historic environment or or enforcement um, or indeed local planning and strategic planning. So so you know put your name forward and, and volunteer for things would probably be my advice to a to a young planner. Thank you very and, um, much, Chris. The management, sorry, the management needs to support that, don't they? The, the management needs to yeah, give these opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to move, if I may, to Understood. Charlie. Ask Charlie what his question is. Thanks, Mary. Um, uh, but what I'm interested in, in understanding is, is your view on what's the greatest challenge that is currently facing Plymouth um, and what's, um, what's been done to deal with it? Well, there's no doubt the greatest challenge facing Plymouth and the, is the greatest challenge um, facing us all, um, which is climate change uh, and the role of climate change um, and what planning can do. And I very strongly believe that planning can play an absolutely central role in addressing climate change. So there are various aspects to that. And, you know, the case we heard about earlier in terms of flooding, you know, the, the, uh, and resilience and, you know, how we decarbonise housing and transport and energy though undoubtedly climate change is the biggest challenge facing every local planning authority and of course the government uh, in terms of um, of how we take uh, take we move towards a different economy and a different way in which we we plan our cities thank you thank you, thank you charlie sasha what's your question for paul please Paul, I'd just like to, uh, in, in obviously we've, we've all collectively reached a view, Plymouth is obviously a, a, a epitomises success from its utilisation of the planning system. How much, how much responsibility have the politicians taken in, in helping you with the, that, that journey and that progress? Yeah, great question. Although I should say at the start that, um, that Plymouth was once um, uh, a planning standards authority. Um, so it had been named and shamed nationally. I think if my memory serves me correctly, we were one of 82 planning standards authorities, obviously related to planning application performance primarily. Uh, of those 82, only six were in all three categories. And of that six, there was only one of them that was also rated in the lowest um, CPA rating at the time. And that was us. So you could say it couldn't have really got any worse. So... Um, to answer your question, the polit politicians are key to this. I vehemently believe that planning is an inherently democratic process. And 
what comes with that responsibility is political leadership. And whilst there are many examples of where that, that doesn't occur, it's absolutely central to planning, achieving what it needs to do. And, it, and it's a partnership. You know, the best authorities, and, and I think the best local planning authorities, are those where it is a partnership between members and officers re recognizing and respecting the different roles and responsibilities. So my answer to that, given that, and I must add this up, um, uh, since I've been in Plymouth um, since 1991, um, I, I'm definitely into double figures in terms of the number of changes of political control. Quite how many it is, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But um, that needs to be managed. And actually, I think that's one of the things planners also do very well. They manage with political awareness in terms of, of what members are trying to achieve when they have those concerns about development projects. But it's their job to speak truth to power and to actually manage those issues and solve the issues that are of concern to members. And you do that by being proactive. Thank you, Mary. Thank you very much, Sasha. Paul, thank you so much. Um, I, I could, I could, I've got several other questions, but I see we're rather, we're just coming to the really um, the end of time. So thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure to have you. And it's lovely to hear all about Plymouth again. Back to you, thank Charlie. You. Thanks, Mary. And I reiterate that thanks. Really fascinating discussion and inspiration for others who want to follow your, your path. Um, we're back on the 30th of March for our last show before Easter with Baroness Neville Rolfe. Uh, the chair of the House of Lords Built Environment Committee, whose report um, on, on uh, planning reform um, and associated matters was covered um, in the news not so long ago. Former civil servant, board member of Tesco. So we're really looking forward to our discussion with her in a couple of weeks' time. And um, look forward... 31st, Charlie. 31st. 31st, even. You said, I can't add up, can I? Uh, <laughs> there no. we are. Well, exactly. Well, I'll be there on the 30th, just <laughs> getting ready and preparing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we'll, we'll see you all then <laughs> take care everybody see you bye bye, -bye. bye.